Testing, testing, testing. Can you hear me? This is Audible Autism. here with another episode of Audible Autism, Interesting Questions and Interesting Facts. I've got another interview for you with Dr. Robert Court, an Associate Researcher in Artificial Intelligence at the University of Edinburgh. I actually went to Edinburgh to tape this, which is why Odai isn't with us for this one, but he'll be back. Robbie and I have known each other since we met at the University of Bradford in 2008, so we go way back and I'm really pleased to be able to get him on air for you because Robbie's my personal autistic godfather and meeting him around the same time as I realised that I was autistic changed my life. People who know me well can probably hear echoes of my own thoughts around being autistic in what he has to say here. For everyone else, Robbie has some very interesting things to say about how he views autism as an evolutionary phenomenon how he manages his dyslexia while getting a doctorate, and why neuroscience is better than psychology. Have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. So, Robbie, <laughs> what is your autism story? Because obviously I met you when you were 30, and you seemed to be autistic before that. Um... Well, when I was at school, well, but I, sh- I should probably say I'm dyslexic. Um, I now officially am ADHD and autism. ADHD and autism is very recent, um, diagnosis-wise. And um, the dyslexia, I only got diagnosed in the first year of university, mm. but I knew about that just after I'd left school, probably. But it was not diagnosed at school because my parents suggested it to my English teacher, which I found out years later. And um, he said I wasn't that stupid. So um, oh, how nice <laughs> they would—they they, they didn't have any dyslexics or anybody at my school. They didn't really um, doing that. Bear, bear in mind that that were, there, there were dyslexic people and lots of stuff being recognised in other schools. I think that school was just bad at that time. Mm. Um, Apparently they have improved a lot, so I haven't sued them. But <laughs> so, where did the autism thing come from? Um, the autism thing was basically well, I got the dyslexia thing. Well, it's a bit weird. I thought when when I was younger, I just thought, oh, this is just because I'm gay. Mm. Um, and then I sort of thought, well, no, because then I met my <laughs> and then I thought, well, okay, then it's the dyslexia. Um, and then I kind of met more dyslexic people and thought, no, then there's something else. And then there was a Radio 4 thing on there, and they sort of were listing things and going through. Mm. People were talking about it, and I thought, oh, that's it. Um, what was? Autism. No, no, like, In, what, what is it that you were Oh, God. Um, just, just me being normal. Um, and other people not being like that. Mm. Um, I didn't think I was abnormal per se, but it was just people wouldn't behave the way I did. Mm. Um, so, yes. Mm. And I had to learn how to be like them a little bit. Mm. Um, basically, I st- when I was younger, I, I hung in bars and studied people. Mm. Um, well, I did an apprenticeship and... I did get to work, but um, I 
I'm sure I must have done, but I used to work in a nightclub as well. And I used to spend most nights in the pub talking to people at bars. I also found being drunk was brilliant because people would forgive you mm-hmm. um, autistic traits mm-hmm. when you're drunk because if you appear to be drunk then therefore accidentally insulting them and and sort of ignoring their point and talking random <laughs> shit was kind of acceptable. Um, so that was always a good way of getting around that. Mm-hmm. And then I basically sort of stole canned responses from people um, and then sort of made up a sort of small talk personality thing going on from that. Um, um, so you listened to the Radio 4 documentary and thought, ah, that's you. Yes. Did that have any impact on you? Yes, very much. Um, because suddenly I could make... Because prior to that, I used to have... I mean, bear in mind, I've been in a relationship for about 20... Coming on to 25 years... And so I was in that at that time and we had lots of blazing rails and I used to quite often lose my temper and would like punch holes in walls and stuff um, and things. And I I wasn't very good at regulating my own emotions um, and actually reading up on people and sort of understanding better why, what sort of was triggering me. It actually enabled me to control myself more. And sort of to sit, basically, go step back a bit and actually just do that, which actually made me a lot better at arguing because I can win arguments without losing my temper now, <laughs> um, which drives my partner mental because um, then he loses his temper. But um, then I've won, and that's the important thing. Um, so, no, yeah, I think that helped me control myself better, just reading up on things. Mm. Um, and thinking about how I was doing stuff and sort of self-analysing really which I assume you could have done without a diagnosis but it kind of triggers Mm. that to do that Did you read anything particularly useful? Um, I don't know really I think it was more reading that sort of I don't know I'm trying to think of anything particular but I don't think there is I think it's just that it makes you think about yourself Mm. and I was also, probably at the same time and things, I was sort of forming my own ideas of what consciousness is and things. Mm. And you kind of have to think of yourself as the bit of you that thinks about yourself mm. and sort of has conversations with yourself, sits above your, your, yourself as a physical thing. And you have to think that you're controlling another person. You're not actually directly in control. You're just suggesting things. And whether your body and your emotions actually respond is down to how persuasive you are. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I kind of look at it like that. But um, did you? It took you quite a while to go get officially diagnosed. Oh yeah, no, I've only just been officially diagnosed. Um, basically, before I, I'd worked, I did an apprenticeship and then worked for about fourteen years, and then decided that. Um, well I employed a person with a doctorate and he was an idiot and I thought if he can be a, get a doctorate then I can get a doctorate <laughs> so I thought because I'd kind of been put off education because of the whole dyslexia and mm-hmm. the thing and basically I'd been taught that I was an idiot uh, up to that point and then 
So it took me many years to recover from my initial education experience and I thought I was mature enough to go back again and try and act because I'd never done any university at all. So um, I went and did, did a um, bachelor's in um, robotics and artificial intelligence in Bradford. And, and met me. Yes, and met you. <laughs> Um, and many other people. Um, it was very, very good. Um, and I'm glad I did it at 30. I would not have coped with it when I was younger. But um, the good thing about that was they... Um, oh, I had tried to get... I tried to get a diagnosis for dyslexia earlier, but um, at college, because I'd done um, an ONC and HNC, but they basically had the oh. attitude... I know in ordinary national certificate and higher national certificate in electronic engineering. Oh, okay. That's what you do if you do an apprenticeship. Oh, okay, cool. But um, the college basically had the thing that you had to pay 80 quid to get assessed and they wouldn't recognise any, they wouldn't give you any help until you could prove it. Right. Um, and so I kind of just left that until, because the university were going to test for free. So I got that at university and that was useful that was very useful and then also by 30 I was kind of happy about I hadn't had any help in any of my earlier education and stuff and as a consequence I hadn't got good marks because I didn't have a computer when I was younger and everything was handwritten so my handwriting is terrible um, and my spelling is terrible and all my all my coursework was marked and all my exams were marked down because of my spelling and and um, terrible writing mm. and so that's why I, I only I didn't even get a C in English, which um, I only got onto the college course because I got predicted a C, and they never actually asked my real results. Um, so yeah, the um, from the uh, autism. Yeah, so you've now got a bachelor's and a master's and a doctorate. Yes. In artificial intelligence. No, I have I have a master's in. Um, <laughs> in neuroinformatics um, or neuroscience. I kind of have a master's in neuroscience and then a PhD in neuroinformatics. I think that's how it works. But um, yeah, basically I, st I, st I studied robotics and artificial intelligence because I was interested in artificial intelligence and then discovered they don't actually understand what intelligence is. So it's kind of hard to model something when you don't actually know mm. what you're trying to simulate. So I went into, I thought I'd try and sidestep to neuroscience um, and then discovered they don't really understand what it is neither um, so that was quite interesting and then so I from because I was intending to do sort of neuroscience based computing stuff and in the end I ended up doing anatomy basically because it's disturbing in neuroscience how little we've actually basically mapped of anatomy of just saying this neuron is here, this connects to here, these there are these different neuron types. And just so it appalls me that because there's all these people doing simulations and they're based on very little data. So it'll be based on like one person extracting a neuron in a in a squid and it did this. So we'll we'll try and model the entire brain based on that. Um and neurons are very different. They all have very different behaviours. And the more you look at them, the more complex they can be. And, yeah, it's one of those never-ending problems. But the problem is you have to do the basic work. And I, so I just went down and did that and started doing modelling in flies. Because um, we've only ever modelled the nervous system of nematode worms. And, um, 
And how many Not nematode worms, what I talk about, C. elegans. Um, and how many neurons have they got? 56, or 54 or 56, somewhere okay. like that. And how many does a brain, a fly have? A fly has about 10,000. Although I'm always suspicious of these numbers because some guy came up with loads of numbers mm. of neurons in different systems and it's a bit... I've never been able to figure out how you actually got these numbers, so it's a bit arbitrary, but so it's a good guess. So you are now at the cutting edge of science. Um, well, yeah, I'm combining... I basically do... I, 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 I kind of describe my job as IT, but um, I basically take neuroscience research and combine it and um, take, take research from multiple labs, combine it together and sort of work out the essential bits of information that are actually useful to other labs and then make that all publicly available so that they can access all the actual research rather than just... Because papers, when you publish a paper, you basically have a theory and then you say, yes, this hit this or this didn't hit it. Mm. And you show a, a few prime examples, um, but that's no use to anyone else unless they're looking at that particular thing. But to, to do that, you may have extracted hundreds of different neurons and found all these connections and stuff like that. But if that isn't part of your paper, then it doesn't get published. Um, so all the data they've collected that they've spent hundreds of thousands of pounds collecting all this data, we take the raw data and we align it and with other, with other labs' results and then make it available so that other people can draw new conclusions from that data rather than having to redo all the lab work. Hmm, which um, is really cool. So you, you've been on an academic career for the last 10 years now, or something like that, despite having quite severe dyslexia. Yeah. Um, how did you achieve that? Um, through brute force, I think. Um, <laughs> it's not too bad. I mean, the um, I made sure... There was quite an interesting thing with starting later, because a lot of people who are officially disabled on the get official disability support don't take advantage of it and it's very hard for students students are basically asked do you want help with this and that's a very loaded question for a lot of people because it kind of seems like some sort of defeat or something to accept that support and I kind of I always think that these things should be automatic um, because otherwise the moment you are some some sort of impressionable 17 year old do you need help with this they're going to say no mm. um, and at 30 I turned around and said yes yes I will have everything you can give me please um, because it was my bloody tax it was my um, council tax that paid for it anyway <laughs> so um, I was getting some money back on it um, what did they um, do for you? well Bradford was quite a, I don't know if I would say they were great but they were very keen on getting every possible penny they could, including paying themselves a very good wage for um, supporting the student. So the disability department were very well paid from my local authority for just being there um, every year. But they gave me um, computer, which is the most useful thing. Um, computer is essential, really, if you can't write very well, um, and solves a lot of problems for a lot of different disabilities and things. Um, and just organises your life a lot easier. How do you uh, do reading? Um, reading, I use screen readers. Because um, I can read actually probably faster than most people if I use a screen reader on high speed um, and read through text. And basically, and just Have being a, a thing that speaks out 
Yeah, so it just reads out text on the screen. Um, there's various different ones, but it's, it used to be really expensive to buy. The disability service used to pay for, like, I think it's Gold Reader or something. But um, you can get it. It's pretty much built into most stuff now. Mm. Um, the main thing being that you can turn it up to an appropriate speed because if it's going to read it out slower than you can read it yourself, it's not really helpful. Mm. Um, but, yeah, if I can have a screen reader on high the speed, then I can actually skim read through stuff pretty quickly um, which is quite good it's quite hard getting um, that's the main thing is getting books and references available online and getting all the notes in advance was one of the most useful things I had a note taker um, they wrote down all the notes it was kind of nice because then at least there was two of us in the lessons because <laughs> there was only nine on the course and me and about three others were only ever turned up. So yeah. very good value for money, the robotics course in Bradford. I think they've gone bankrupt now. But um, So now you're in work, do you uh, just use the screen reader or do you have anything else? Um, the interesting thing is now as I'm at work, I actually um, don't really directly get any support. Mm. Um, I am in theory titled to it, but I've got a laptop and I've got... All, I don't need anything more than that, really. It's just the screen reader. Yeah. Um, but you still went off and have been seeking an official ADD or I did. Well, the interesting thing was I could have... When I came to... I didn't get a diagnosis for autism because I did look into it. But at the time, my local authority, the doctor basically said the local authority won't pay for it unless you have serious mental health concerns issues concerned basically unless you tried to kill yourself because you're depressed about it they won't get you a diagnosis and deal with it in any fashion because they wanted to save money um which was a bit annoying um but understandable but then i i looked into doing it privately but the cheapest quote i could get was about a thousand pounds for a guy to chat with me and then give write me a letter um the rest of them wanted nearer £2,000 and needed my parents to go to interviews and stuff like that. Because mm. the diagnosis as an adult is quite difficult because they tend to base it on how you were as a child. So they mm. kind of need to talk to my parents and stuff, which is interesting because my parent, my mother remembers nothing. Because we tried on this diagnosis to sort of get her to remember stuff and she was just like, no. <laughs> She's just like, you were normal. There's nothing wrong with you. You're normal. <laughs> you were. Um, yeah, well... <laughs> In retrospect, I probably was a bit harsher on things, but I probably did make my mother's life hard. But that's, but it's fine. She's very proud now. Um, so, how did you get it in the end? Um, so, in the end, I um, I came to Edinburgh University. They didn't do any diagnosis at the time. The interesting thing now is, just at the end of my course, I spoke to them, and they said. Oh yeah, now we have a person who can who does di on our on our books that will do diagnosis of autism. Mm. Um, oh, and we could have just done it, but they hadn't told me, so mm. that was annoying, and it was too late by that point. Uh, but someone else mentioned in Scotland, actually, if you go to the doctor, they'll just if you if you talk to the doctor, they'll refer you, and they'd done it that way. Um, so I I went to the doctor and had a chat with her, um, which was interesting because she turned out to be autistic as well. Um, and the main the main thing she wanted to know is why I wanted a diagnosis. Um, a good question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of um, I basically just wanted it so uh, I wanted official thing that I hadn't just made it up and 
Because <laughs> you kind of, you do question yourself if you've, I mean, I, I, I don't really have any doubt that I was. Um, and most people I know weren't diagnosed. It's only a very recent thing that kids are diagnosed. Um, and so, yeah, I managed to persuade her that it would be good it would be good for my peace of mind that it would be sorted. And also, if I had any issues with employers or needed anything in future, then I have that backing to do that. And I also wanted to sort out if I had ADHD, um, just to see if there was any um, anything that could be done for that as well. Mm. Um, did you, when, did, when did you suspect that you had that? Because I, um, I know in my case, like my my site came back and said, yeah, you've, you you definitely got autism. We it's actually that. it's actually. And then he was like, you've got ADHD as well, and I was like. You are. I kind of. I'm, I don't know if I did suspect it before you mentioned it, but as soon as you mentioned it, I thought, "Yup, yes, that <laughs> that that would also explain it," because I'd also been going, "Well, all these I've met all these different autistic people. And they were just like, yeah, they're not quite. They're not exactly the same as me because I had different issues. Mm. I mean, because it's weird, it's weird. You get sort of like other things like dyslexia and other other things all seem to be some way related because you get different things I, fi- I find people with um, autism and that don't have any learning difficulties a little odd because they can do all these things it's like there's nothing stopping you um, so um, yeah no I, it's, it, it's interesting trying to pick which mix I mean I think to be honest the, the tests are, in, are, are in, bearing in mind I, I work in neuroscience and if you work with people who actually work in in human psychology and stuff, they actually come up with these tests. The test for doing um, for um, ADHD is actually called the Diva test, which clearly some researcher desperately worked the acronym into that. Um, yeah, so the the Diva test um, basically it's a list of all the um, symptoms that have been clinically listed as being what ADHD is, and then they formed them into the means of a question. So it's basically, would you say you had, um, I'm trying to think of one now, but um, like trouble sitting still or something. And then there were long box questions that he was supposed to fill in a long answer, but nearly all of them were yes and no. And it was pretty much, if you just said yes to all the answers, then you had ADHD, they totted up the scores and then just said, yes, you have ADHD. So it was pretty much, they could have got the same result if they just asked, do you think you have ADHD? Given these symptoms, do you think you have ADHD? And yes or no. And they would have probably got the same statistical results. Um, but, yeah. Do you consider that to be inadequate? Uh, I consider that to be psychology. That's kind of... Um, that's pretty much how most tests work for nearly anything. I mean, do you hear voices? Yes, then you ask. It's, yeah. it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's a weird science and the fact that it's very much, they haven't, understanding the, what, it, it's, it's sort of cart before the horse problem in a lot of things and the fact they've come up with these diagnoses and then they try and figure out what, what it is they're actually trying to diagnose. So actually, they're probably covering like a mass of different things. And so, yeah, it's, until you find a physical symptom or some chemical imbalance or something you can physically map them to. That's a very neuroscientific perspective. Yeah, it's an, inter- <laughs> it's an interesting one. If you work in, yeah, it depends on the field. But um, 
yeah, it's it's a bit more woolly on the um, I mean, when you get to humans. What, what do you think that we would be looking for if we were looking to diagnose things from a, a neuro perspective? Oh, well, autism. Um, or ADHD. Yeah, I mean, I think they're all generally accepted to be some sort of wiring issues or... Mm. I don't know. I, I don't consider them to be... I don't consider them to be problems. I definitely don't consider them to be disorders. Mm. I consider it to be just a general variation of... in in neurodevelopment. I mean, it's just... It, uh, humans are not designed to all be the same. That would be utterly... In, that would be utterly pointless as a species for everyone to be the same. We have to have variation, otherwise evolution doesn't work. Um, so there has to be natural variation in how things wire up. Even in flies, you get sort of a 20% variance in how they wire themselves up, and that may result in the fly not functioning. But because you've got so many flies, it's, some of them might be better at something, and therefore then they they thrive, and then they would take over. And that's... Um, that's how evolution works. And so we've evolved weird things. And I, I kind of... It's hard to say whether we're, we're the more advanced ones or neurotypical people are the more advanced ones. In the fact, it depends where you're going because they're more communitive. But, is, but we tend to be more advanced at abstract thinking, which is more involved in science and advancements and... If you look at most scientific research, most advancements were made by um, people that are definitely on the spectrum. And, yeah, I think the world has a, a lot for us to thank us for. And I think it would be a serious problem if we weren't here. Um, so just because we can't be quite as social at parties doesn't mean... Um, <laughs> means we can understand a rocket in our head. is a bit better. So, um, yeah, I... I I kind of feel we're um, we're sort of the extreme end of sort of abstract thought mm. development, um, rather sort of adapting whole sections of your brain that you would use for community things. Because I mean, if you want sort of understanding and getting on in communities, then dogs do that. It doesn't mean you're advanced. Um, I mean, most animals have extremely advanced sort of communication and empathy responses and things like that but it doesn't mean they can understand how to solve complex problems do you think that dogs don't have autistic dogs oh no i think they probably do i mean this is this is the thing i mean it's just normal um behavior dogs are a bit weird in the fact that we've bred them for specific behaviors and that well, that's weird. a really interesting question like if autism is like part of the 20% variance across you know, the human brain, um, then that presumably means that there are presumably dogs and flies that have a similar variance that are less social and more inclined to yeah, solve I mean, problems. You definitely see that in communities systems. of flies. It's interesting because you get communities of flies that are in theory spread to be one genetic thing and they will, even if you, it doesn't matter how hard you reinforce that, they will naturally have mutations and sort of, they generally jump back to what is the wild type genetics as well. It's a pain in the ass if you're trying to do any genetic research. Um, but um, there's always variants, and there's always different behaviours in groups as well. Oh, it's so. really interesting. I had a, I had a guinea pig um, 
who we, we originally thought he was blind because he just he just didn't like notice or hang around other guinea pigs like he just hung out by himself like in his cage like refusing to like come out or talk to anyone for a while and then when he like eventually realised that he did want to hang around other guinea pigs he kept like harassing them and just, just couldn't work out how to play with them yep. it was just like you know everyone accuses me all the time of like diagnosing everyone around me with autism so I didn't want to be like I feel like my guinea pig's autistic but <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> like it was a possibility if like this is the thing until you until you pin down autism to a specific thing I mean we're just we're probably bunching a massive range of variable things and this was this is the thing we were mm. dis- discussing sort of trying to diagnose it as a genetic if you sort of get genetic markers to pin autism it's probably likely most most things you try and pin down to genetics, you only you find that actually only attributes for a small mm. percentage, and the rest are just variations in different things that have the same result. Um, yeah, I've. Uh, it's I, surprising I've how many different wiring ways you can end up with the same result. Yeah, because there's obviously a relationship between autism, ADD, dyslexia, all of the you know the disses. Um, yeah, but, but then it's they're not, not clear I, to me what that relationship is. I always find it really difficult, sort of labelling them as disabilities and things like that. They're just different ways of thinking, which is mm. perfectly normal and perfectly acceptable and should be embraced by communities because difference is a good thing because it enables you to survive disasters and evolve and be able to think about things that. If if everyone thought the same, we'd never get anywhere because we'd just do the one thing and no one would come up with anything interesting. Yeah, we'd still be locked in the escape room. Yes. <laughs> that makes no sense to people listening. I was about to explain it and now you've ruined the moment. Oh. <laughs> to clarify to listeners at home, um, I'm visiting Robbie at the moment and we went and uh, did an escape room with another friend and with uh, two autistic people on the team locked in a room trying to work out how to get out, we like <laughs> broke it in 32 it's, minutes yeah. and went straight onto the top of the leadership board. Yeah, you know, we did. Just saying. We did. We did very well. There weren't. There weren't any. There weren't any problems that actually required normal thinking. I think was probably the, the way we did really well. It was all. It was all just numbers and and puzzles that were fixed and, and no complex math because I am not good at that. No. Um, but um, did the official diagnosis just to go back to that? Um, did the official diagnosis have any impact on your life, or was it sort of future forward planning? It didn't really have any. Di- it, it, it was kind of a side note, really. I mean, the ADHD was kind of more useful in the fact that I have got some medication for that. Mm. Um, in the fact that I have the what, what's it called? It's slow release. It's basically concertin. slow release Ritalin concertin. Yeah, concertin. Um, and I'm on a very low dose of that, and I was trialling that, um, which works very well um, in the helping with the ADHD. Interestingly, it does make me more autistic. Oh, really? I think because um, I think I think having an interesting mix of ADHD and autism is quite good because the ADHD kind of evens out the autism in the fact that rather than being stuck on a subject for ages you're just jumping about all over the time so oh, interesting way of it kind of evens out but yeah I get I, I, basically if I take if I take the tablets I've more especially in 
with my other half um, if if there's a particular point rather than just say like if someone does like turns a phrase that are clearly wrong because um, <laughs> most most things people say are actually technically wrong um, but they're things that people say mm. I can't let it go like oh I'm trying to think of an example but yeah normally normally I can just go just let it go that's it's easier just to not mention that and when I'm on the pill I kind of have to sort of 10 minutes later go no I can't do that because you've said it wrong (laughs) and that will annoy me and I will let it annoy me and that's yeah that's so that probably makes me a bit more annoying so camera calls my my angry pills Um, so yeah I only use those basically to get on with work um, to some extent because otherwise I find myself a bit inact. I can sometimes... I go through peaks of activity and sort of lulls. And I find myself sort of sitting there thinking loads but not actually doing anything. Um, and that can be a problem sometimes. Mm, okay. Um, but... So, final question on this topic, because you did mention it in your question and I did want to raise it. Um, we are coming, and you're a very good person to talk to about this, we are coming very close to being able to do prenatal testing for autism. Um, and I think it's very obvious that people view um, that as a good thing because then people will be able to um, get rid of us. Um, and I wanted to ask you what you thought yeah. of that. Um, it's a really difficult. It's, it's really interesting working in neuroscience and being non-neurotypical because you go to conferences and stuff, and people talk about these diseases or um, conditions, and they. They do just talk about is they basically just have the automatic thing that it would be a good thing to cure these things, mm. um, and I use that in inverted commas, but um, but they don't really understand what it is. It's it's just an interesting research topic to them. I don't think they think about the wider impact of it. Um, so it's a bit weird. It's it's kind of driven from America, where there's there's it's it's a bit horrible in America. They kind of sort of have the attitude that. It's because when you add, I don't mean to bring it, but when you add religion into it, in America there's a lot of sort of like, the mother must have done something to deserve having a child, and they, or they've been sent to test them when you're talking about severe autism and things like that. And it's just, it's just really nasty and horrible, and it's just, it's just a, it, it might be a genetic thing, or it might be a random occurrence, but it doesn't mean anything. It's just, that's just how things are. And, if, yeah, I think once you do all that, they kind of feel they have to cure it or get rid of it. Mm. And it any- makes it think of a bad thing more. Mm. Is anyone in the scientific community sort of flagging this up as a... Yeah, I mean, it kind of... Yeah, it does get it does get mentioned, but the problem is it's mostly sort of PhD students who come in and sort of go, oh, I could do something on autism or something, and then sort of come up with these ways the, the, it's one of those things that they, can't, they, can't, they will come up with a test but whether people come up with tests for loads of things but the moral question as to why you should should you be doing what's, what's the advantage of having this test um, will it actually benefit anyone to have this test because I mean there's loads of tests for conditions that, that it tests for you might get this condition but because um, like in America they did loads of um, when you got 
when you got insurance, they'd do loads of sort of body scans of you and see what you had. And they'd pick up tons and tons of conditions and then they'd do loads of unnecessary operations, which probably caused more problems. They, they actually did cause more problems than it would have ever solved. Like what? Um, I can't remember the particular conditions they were treating for, but um, they were doing loads of operations. And it turned out only a half of these people would have actually developed um, the problem, but they'd actually all gone through major surgery oh, because they'd been like, picked up for it. What, like the cancer and people having... Um, oh, it's just like prevalence of things, prevalence. especially with genetics. I mean, most genetics, it's only it's only a lot... It gives, you're more likely to develop it, but it doesn't mean you're going to develop it. Um, so pre-testing is always a iffy moral, moral question and you have to sort of weigh up the things. And that doesn't necessarily happen when people are developing a genetic test at the sort of low-level element. Um, and then you get companies coming along and going, oh, we'll screen you for this and stuff. And they don't do sort of um, moral questioning of themselves or anything. Mm. So once you've got a test, it will be used, um, no matter what. I mean, it's kind of inevitable. But the lucky thing is it will probably be incredibly difficult because it looks more like um, it's a wiring condition. And there's probably multiple genetic... Um, Things and it's probably epigenetic, which means that it's probably caused by environmental conditions, causing other things. Uh, basically, most most things, especially you, with neuroscience. You think autism is uh, caused by the environment? Um, no, it could be. Basically, you'd need you'd need some sort of genetics, some sort of environmental cues or something. Mm. I'm not saying I'm, I will. No, no, no. I was going to say, what sort of environment? What, what we no, 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 I'm not necessarily even saying environment, but just, um, it could just be, it could be anything. It could be any number of things, and it's, it's, it's everything you look at is way more complicated than that. Mm. Um, so if there is a genetic test, it will probably only hit a small percentage of people. Um, but again, that could screen out effectively part of our community, which, um... Yeah, we need to probably work on... This is why I'm kind of... It was kind of a good thing in the fact they got rid of the segregating sort of higher functioning autism from the rest of autism and the fact that it means that there's coherent and mm. argumentative people um, campaigning for autism in general. I mean, I know it's really difficult for parents, but I, I'm, I've never really been sold on the um, sort of people shouldn't exist because they're inconvenient. And I know that's really difficult, but, I mean, it's a whole abortion argument in the first place, mm. but um, I think selectively picking for things is always a bad idea because we don't make good decisions as a human race. The moment you can pick boys and girls, we're going to be screwed because we'll all end up with boys or something or girls in one country or whatever, depending on whoever feels like what at the time. Yeah. And that's never a good thing, really. Mm. Um, yes. Okay. Um, I think we'll leave it there. Um, I'll, I'll close with one question. Um, you know, um, do you like being autistic? Oh, God, yes. Um, I mean, basically, I couldn't imagine not being autistic. I mean... I mean, my career before I entered university was basically... I was paid to go and look at a piece of equipment I'd never seen before, figure out 
what it was supposed to do, why wasn't it doing that, and fix it. And I was paid a lot of money to do that, and it was very good, and I enjoyed it. Um, and it always... I could never fathom why other people couldn't do this. Um, why... I just, I just couldn't figure out why they couldn't get their head around it and why I'd have to sit there and explain, work through all the steps with them. And then eventually, after five hours of explaining, they'd get to the point where it was just like that I got to within about three seconds of just looking at the thing. And so, yeah, I understand, I understand computers, I understand systems, um, and I understand people quite well. I like sitting around in bars and stuff. I, I spent a lot of time studying people and... I can figure out whether people are upset and what they're upset about or something. And it's, it's not, it's, it's just, I think having to, having to think about how to emulate behavior makes you more conscious of how that actually works. Whereas in neurotypical people, they just automatically do it and they don't actually think about it. So they have no understanding of it. Um, so I think in understanding behaviour, it's a lot more useful to be on the outside looking in as an observer. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's mildly inconvenienced my life in occasions, but I don't think it's a massive thing. I think I'd much rather, I'd much rather understand nearly everything rather than just being able to talk to people. <laughs> Thank you very much, Robin. That brings us to the end of this episode. As you can probably tell if you've been listening to every episode, when we set out to make this podcast, we actively made the decision that we weren't going to try and make every episode perfect before it went out, but that we would try and get it out on a regular schedule and learn from every episode as it went out about how we could do it better. We have now been making progress and uh, we've been mastering the art of scheduling so that by the time that you listen to this, our next episode, which will be our final one before we take our winter break, has already been taped and is about half edited. But after the winter break, we are going to be looking at getting more people on the podcast, uh, not just as interviews, but we're also interested in hearing from people if they have a special interest that they can tell us cool facts about, um, if people are holding an event that uh, they would be happy for us to broadcast, um, or, or really anything like that. Uh, the form of Audible Autism is very flexible, um, and we'd be really happy to just have a chat with you about how we could go about doing something together. The goal is to be audible autistic people, um, and if you're autistic and you're capable of being audible, let's chat. You can email us at team at audibleautism.com or go to our website at audibleautism.com and just fill out the contact form. If you've got any other feedback, we'd also love to hear from you, so do get in touch. See you next time for our last episode of 2017, and again, thanks for listening. <laughs>